Anyway, good morning to you all. Kyle here, so glad to be with you. Uh, how I long to see your face, uh, to stand physically in your presence, maybe even like some air high fives six feet apart from one another. Oh, Lord, hasten the day. Well, before we get into the bulk of our teaching today in Mark chapter 4, I just have like a, a quick pastoral word, something that's been um, kind of stirring up this past week. And I know that for many of us, and I count myself right in the middle of this, that this season just is a mixed bag. It just is kind of odd. For some of us, we've experienced some beautiful personal and relational breakthrough, but then that breakthrough is kind of shadowed by some guilt because we don't want to necessarily share that breakthrough with other people who this season is just marked by one breakdown after another. And they are just, they're tired, they're, they're weary, they're ready for this whole thing to be over. And wherever you yourself this morning or this afternoon or evening would plot yourself in this season, whether this has actually been a beautiful season of rest for you and reconnection with the Lord, or you are just thankful that you're here, I have this to say to us, myself included, a new thing is coming. See, what was will no longer be. Like, we are not going to get back to what it was. Like, the normal, like that nostalgic sense that wants to draw us back into the past and replay it in the present, that is simply gone. And so my invitation to you from like a place of, of love is start grieving that thing. Um, perhaps the first like step in that process is just to recognize that there is a new thing coming. And part of the way that we recognize that is by simply seeing that, that the moment we're in is different. And that's okay. And when I say a new thing is coming, what that also means is that where we are at, that this platform, this too will change. And what this means for all of us is that there is a lot of change happening more than I think we've prepared our hearts to receive. But you may not have known this. Um, this is actually a beautiful place for us to be. This is a beautiful place for us to be today in this tension of ongoing and persistent change and challenge. Because today, in the gospel according to Mark, Jesus is teaching it's coming in the wake of conflict. In fact, it's coming close on the heels of him being mobbed by a crowd, being told he was possessed by a demon, and that he was out of his mind by his family. See, where we are today is a beautiful place because where we are is with Jesus in the wake of a tense moment. Like, it would be um, totally fine for us to say that Jesus knows a thing or two about tense moments, about conflict within his own crew and outside of himself. And what's surprising to me uh, amidst all of this conflict is that in the wake of it, Jesus decides to tell a story, which is a, a, like a totally, a totally Jesus thing to do. See, he tells this story that's littered with 
imagery from the Hebrew Bible, specifically this famous prophet, the prophet Isaiah, about a sower sowing seed in various types of soil. <laughs> and then after he goes through this story, that he's speaking to large crowds of people who like just mobbed him, those around him and his disciples, I imagine with like these bewildered looks on their face, they turn to Jesus and they ask him, what in the world was that all about? Well, this is where we're going to be today. We're going to be in a little story about a story. We're going to be in this section of Mark 4 where a parable is explained. And over these next few weeks, this is what we'll do, is we're going to slow down with Jesus in the parables. And so if you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 11, because this is what Jesus was on about. He says this to his disciples. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now, these are rather like <laughs> theologically dicey words, but it's funny to me that this is how Jesus seeks to bring clarity for his followers. But although it's kind of funny and ironic and even challenging for me and I imagine for you to hear Jesus say this, if you lived in Jesus's world, if your imagination was just drenched, saturated in the Hebrew Bible and the story of the prophets, then Jesus's words, they would be like light reaching in to the dark places, the corners of your mind and helping you to make sense of the moment that you found yourself in. And I love how Tom Wright, a New Testament scholar, how he helps us today to make sense of Jesus's words here in Mark 4. He, he begins to paint this picture. And so just go here with me. Imagine that you're traveling. You're traveling to a country you've never been before. And in the midst of your travels, you find yourself in like your hotel lobby or, or perhaps in a cafe of some sort. And what you see lying there on the table in front of you is a newspaper. And you can't really make out a lot of uh, the words of the copy on the page. So you flip on over to the, like the comics book section because surely there's something to be had for you there. And as you get there, you can start to like recognize some of the images. And, and though they're familiar in part, they still seem out of sorts. They're still out of reach. They, they just, they lack context. And, and what N.T. Wright would go on to say about this little interaction you're having with this newspaper is that you lack the cultural code. That is, uh, the, the cultural images are just beyond your grasp. You, you don't know why they're significant. So because you don't know why they're significant, you can't discern the meaning of the comic. But, but imagine that you did know. Imagine that you knew what those images meant. If that was the case, then the comic itself, it wouldn't be lost on you. You would be able to make your way through those cultural images and draw out their significance for your moment. They would speak to you, you might be able to say. But if none of that was true, then those images, they wouldn't 
only be lost on you. They would never say anything to you at all. So you would likely just set the newspaper down and go on with your travels as though nothing happened. Your heart wouldn't have been stirred. Your imagination wouldn't have been brought to a new place of possibilities. It would have just been a discarded moment. Wright will, will go on to say that this is what Jesus is doing in the parables. In fact, he says it this way. He says, Jesus's stories are designed to tease. I, I love that little part. <laughs> They're designed to, to tease, to clothe the shocking and revolutionary message about God's kingdom in garb that would leave the listeners wondering, trying to think it out. So whatever these stories are, that they are expressions of, of God's shocking announcement in Jesus that his kingdom was arriving on earth as in heaven. And now, um, is that by any stretch of your imagination how you would describe a parable or Jesus's stories? My guess is the answer is no, unless you're like a scholar of some sort. <laughs> Uh, see, my mind didn't go there. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you grew up in and around churchianity, and so you have a concept of what Jesus' stories, these parables, are. And perhaps you've even explained a parable uh, to your niece or nephew at some point in your life. And it's gone like this, that these are earthly stories with heavenly meaning, with heavenly significance that there's this apparent meaning, like on the surface, that pretty much anybody can access. But then within the nooks and the crannies and the contours of the story, there's, there's like gold to be had there, like precious gold descended from on high. Maybe that's not your context at all. If that's you, you're a kindred spirit in this moment because that's, that's me coming to the parables. For me, I resonate more with like what Siri or Google would say when you ask, what is a parable? That it's this story that illustrates a moral or spiritual point. And for sure, in Jesus's stories, in his parables, there are moral implications. There's ethical ideas embedded in there, but that is not at all what Jesus's parables are doing. That's not, that's not the goal. And so when we pause and consider then, well, what is the goal? And we think again about Jesus's words that are supposed to explain and, and make clear to his followers, those closest to him, what the parables are about. When we, when we think about that with rights, kind of framework in mind, we might be able to see that, that Jesus's stories they have their own cultural images, that they're dressed up in the stories of Jesus's own background, his own context, his own time, his own place, namely Palestine in the first century. See, the words of Jesus is here, that they're, they're actually the words of God to the prophet Isaiah. A person whose unique role in the story of the people of Israel was to call them back to God's way and will in the world, to, to be a people of love and hope and light to the nations. And these words that Jesus echoes here, that he quotes, they come specifically from Isaiah's well-known vision in Isaiah 6. It's this moment where he's commissioned in the presence of the Lord to continue to go to the people of Israel. 
And at this point in Isaiah's life, I mean, he's already been rejected by a people who want blessing without obedience. They want favor without trust. They want God's kingdom without its king. But such is not the way of God. And so to these people, God actually commissions Isaiah to, to say these words. And, and I, just, I just invite you, allow these words to kind of wash over your hearts. See like what feelings come out as these words come to you. This is what God says to Isaiah in Isaiah 6, 10. He says, Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and bind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn to be healed. Then I said, now this is Isaiah speaking back to Yahweh himself, how long? Oh, Lord, like just a, a genuine question, like, okay, how long am I supposed to say this stuff? This is kind of heavy. How long, O oh Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. This is the exile. So if you were to travel back in the Hebrew imagination from Jesus's point, just a little ways backwards, well, a few centuries or so, the Hebrew people would find themselves in exile. They would find themselves displaced from the land promised to them. They would, they would actually find themselves longing for God. But it was their lack of obedience that landed them there in the first place. See, the land of promise that God was giving to Abraham and his ancestors was, was a place that came with a cost of sorts. It was a land that, that came with the cost of obedience, the land of being set apart as holy to God. And when times became tough, Israel rejected their God. They turned away from him. And so God gave them over to their desires to no longer be his people. They were exiled. This is the point to which Isaiah is to speak. He, he's supposed to go that far until the people are displaced from the land of promise. But it doesn't stop there. Go to verse 13 if you're with me. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be purged again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. See, now, if you're like a Hebrew Bible nerd, you're recognizing the holy seed. Oh my gosh, what is this, the holy seed? This is like something is just triggered in your imagination. Well, this is what Jesus is doing. This is like a giant hyperlink inviting the people of Israel there with him to think, oh, this is, this is what's going on. See, Jesus, he taps into the prophetic imagination of Isaiah, a prophet who's calling God's people back to himself, saying that, yes, exile will come, but there is a hope beyond exile, that there is a holy seed that will remain, that God will bring his people back to himself. This is what Jesus is tapping into. This is embedded in this simple parable explained. And Jesus here, he, he's not only tapping into the prophetic imagination of Isaiah, he's starting to convey that this is what he's doing, that like Isaiah, he is bringing God's word to reveal the hope of the holy seed. 
Jesus is basically saying this. The moment that we're in, it's exactly like the moment that all of the prophets have been in. That this moment right here, God is sending a message to his people who have turned away from him. They think they're fine, but they don't recognize that the prophetic word is speaking to them. See, Jesus, Jesus wasn't telling these parables to simply help his followers like build out a cozy moral framework so they could be nice in the world. No, Jesus' parables are first and foremost about God's holy hope. They're about the kingdom of heaven breaking in to this present evil age. They actually make a way for Jesus to speak about hope, but they do so indirectly. And they do so indirectly because Jesus is saying this parable on the heels of conflict. Remember, what immediately precedes this are the religious rulers saying to Jesus that he is possessed by Beelzebul. Now, those are fighting words. And I, like Jesus leans in with some simple logic and, and says, in essence, that, well, if Satan is casting down Satan, then, well, everything's going to crumble in that kingdom anyways. Jesus amplifies the tension. And and so he starts to speak almost cryptically. <laughs> he speaks indirectly because direct communication would only escalate the tension further, but his time has not yet come. His time to go to Jerusalem has not yet arrived. But to those who are near him, he gives them the mystery. The, 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 he reveals to them what the kingdom of God is like. He, he gives them the code of the context. And so that's why Jesus says to his closest followers in verse 14, these words. He said, the sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. See, the first seed in this little parable explained is snatched up. Think about it like this in Jesus' context. The, the word itself is revealing the kingdom. And as it becomes more and more apparent, God's kingdom is this upside-down kingdom, a kingdom that will inevitably be shaped by the cross at Calvary, by a Roman execution rack. This is the thing that will shape the kingdom of God. And this is the kingdom wherein those who are the least are going to be the greatest. And those who desire to keep their life ought to give it away, where disciples are called to take up their cross and to simply be with Jesus where he is. That is, in the place of giving himself away in love for his enemies. It's a kingdom where the disenfranchised are established, where those who are broken are made whole. This is where fear and disease are cast out. See, this is not the kind of kingdom people hoped for. This is snatched away when people begin to dismiss the way of the cross altogether. When they dismiss the, the notions of like the outsiders coming in, of those who are considered unclean being cleansed in the presence of Jesus. When those realities are dismissed, the seed is snatched. 
Or I think maybe in our context, when the way of Jesus is made glossy, when it's devoid of struggle, when there's blessing without obedience, when there's favor without trust, the seed is snatched. But notice, just notice this, how generous is the sower? He's like, he's so generous. There's just seed going everywhere. So the seed doesn't just stop there. No, the seed goes out elsewhere. Go with me to verse 16. This is what we read. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Or some of your translations may say they stumble. See, this soil, unlike the first, it's receptive to the seed. But it's not a place of endurance. Hardship comes, and just as soon as the word took root, it then falls away. And I think it's significant for us just to, to notice that each soil, it's like this response to Jesus's announcement that God's kingdom has come to his people. It's come to the people of Israel to bring about restoration. And I, I love how, uh, like the scholar Tim Gombas, I love how he frames this up, and I, I often go back to him. But he suggests that Mark is actually critiquing his disciples here. That specifically, this second soil is a critique of Peter. And he, he gets to his point because he observes that this word, rocky ground, is the word in Greek, petrodes. It's, it's Peter himself. And we know, like, if, if, you're, if you're new to the Bible, let, let me just say, um, Peter is a zeal guy. And now, if you're not new to the Bible, we know that Peter is the dude who, like, when people come to arrest Jesus, he chops a guy's ear off. That Peter, in Mark 14, is the one who says, I will never desert you. Even if everybody else deserts you, I will not desert you. And then when Jesus is on trial, just a few moments later, when, when he is being flogged, Jesus is on trial before a little girl, and he's warming himself by a fire. See, Jesus is going to be rejected by Peter. See, it's, it's interesting, is it not, that there's a critique happening here. And, and Mark is going to lean heavy on the disciples in the parables of Jesus almost as a way for us to see ourselves into the story, to examine our own hearts, to, to see what it looks like to respond to the announcement of the kingdom of God when it was announced. See, to do otherwise, to, to take this moment and to say, well, what's the significance of it? What's the meaning of this type of soil? And, and what are the pressures? And how do those pressures, what, what are the pressures today that, that robs the moment, that, that robs the soil of its significance there. So sit with it. Sit with it. Linger over that moment. See that the parables are, are like this vehicle carrying the hope of God's kingdom forward for those who are able to hear it. But because persecution is but one thing, Look, look to, to verse 18, because that's not the only challenge that's going to come. And others are the ones sown among thorns. 
They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. See, in the third soil, the seed was choked out by the worries and concerns of the world. Remember, Mark, he's painting this picture of various responses, different ways that people come to Jesus' word, his announcement of the kingdom of God. And what I've found fascinating about the third soil is it's the one that most readily relates to like my own life and our context. And so I'm, I'm tempted to just think, my goodness, all, all that we do is so into the third soil and then it's choked out by the desires of the world. And so I'm, I'm tempted to do like the very thing that Mark is inviting me not to do. Mark's inviting me to, to see in this moment, how are people responding? What are the responses of those near and far from Jesus? See, the third soil, it receives the word enthusiastically. Just like the second, I mean, like with joy, it receives it, it, it roots itself down, but then other values, other priorities, other cares start to enter in and choke the word and make it unfruitful. In the second soil, it's pressure from without. It's, it's those outside pressures that, that reveal that there's no rootedness in the sea, so it, it falls away. But in the third soil, it's pressure from within. It's this divided mind. And once again, Mark is going to lean heavily on the disciples here. It's almost as though when Jesus is explaining this, he's giving an opportunity for those near to him to check their allegiance. He's gonna lean into their double-minded interests, their selfish ambition, so that we can receive their warning. See, the, the condition of our heart, it's of the utmost significance. This is like the place from where life will flow. It's the seat of our mind, our will, our emotions, our intellect. It's gonna be the picture in, in the biblical imagination of, of like where all of our life will flow from. This seems to be the soil, the condition of our heart. And there's another type of soil where the seed takes root, it's, it's here in verse 20, go there with me. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. See, the seed, which is God's word, it's like dramatically unsuccessful. <laughs> you think about it, only 25% yield fruit. But the 25% that does yield, it's ridiculously fruitful. In this time and context, there would be an average yield of around seven to one. And if you did like a 10 to one yield in one harvest cycle, it would be like you were just killing it. That would have been a stellar harvest. But in the fertile soil, it's not seven to one, it's not 10 to one, it's 30, it's 60, 100. I mean, these are crazy, almost outlandish numbers. So if the parables, are a vehicle carrying the hope of God's kingdom, what does this hope look like? Well, that, that's the question that the parables make us like look for and, and long into. Remember this past week, if you can think that far back, we did this little mental exercise where we imagined ourselves as this first century Galilean. We were maybe um, a, a farmer or something like that, a fisherman, a fisherwoman. 
And we went and we would hear Jesus. He was proclaiming that the time was fulfilled, the kingdom of God was at hand, repent, turn to him, believe, trust him. Imagine what it would have been like to hear Jesus teaching this, to be along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, hearing him talking about this. You would, you would know the yield that farmers had from their harvests. You would know that this is a crazy number. But if, but if you heard it, if you, if you yourself recalled that in Isaiah, that he was speaking to people who had already made up their mind about Jesus. And, and this, this guy next to me, he's saying that Jesus is crazy, but I think there's something to what he's saying here. See, this is what parables do. They invite us to see that there is a hope in Jesus that can break into the circumstances we find ourselves in and see the hope of an upside down kingdom, one where the last are first and where the broken are made whole. Could you think of a moment in human history where there's brokenness running rampant? Could you think of a moment in your own life where there's been tension in your heart and your home? Could you think of a moment where people who are like fighting with every fiber of their being to keep others well are actually taking their own lives? See, this past week I read an article about uh, a medical professional on the front lines fighting COVID-19 who took her own life. The distress of this moment is real, but a new thing is coming. And for us, for those of us who stake our hope in Jesus, whose hearts we say are undivided to him, whose affections and adoration and allegiances are given over to him, we say that that new thing, it is Jesus, that it came definitively in him, and that the way of Jesus, the ethic of Jesus, was one of love. That it, that it was a, a reality that was so pervasive that death itself could not keep it down. You see, over these next couple of weeks, we're going to sit with Jesus in this hope. We're, we're going to allow the parables to do some work on us. Because Mark, he will inevitably pick back up the pace. <laughs> He's going to move us rapidly through the rest of his gospel account, leading to the cross, the cross where Jesus took the full embodiment of the way and will of God and put it on display. That love is actually self-giving. That, that sacrifice is of higher value than hoarding our goods. You know, it's, it's really interesting to consider the impulse of our hearts in a season like this, is it not? I remember when all this started like six weeks ago, I went to Price Chopper to look for toilet paper, thinking, it's all out. There's none. Where did it go? And how many of us need that much TP? See, this is an impulse in, in my heart. It's an impulse that I like feel strained in this moment. And I know I'm not alone in this. And I know that I'm like struggling and coping with this in ways that are healthy and unhealthy alike. And I know, I know because I've had these conversations with you that you are doing the same thing. But there is 
for those who have ears to hear, a hope that can transcend this moment and be present to us in this moment. So let us, church, let us like actually embrace this moment, not to wish it away for like what's ahead, not to look back with nostalgia in mind and try and recreate the past and the present, but to embrace this moment with God in us and working through us. So let us pray now. And perhaps my words could just create some space in for your heart to ask Jesus to make a way forward a way forward into his presence, uh, uh, like a, a way to kind of like dig out the rocky soil, to like, like plant that seed down deep, to, to like cultivate the life that you have with him right now. And as a whole community, we, we're actually, after this teaching is done, we're, we're going to gather together and we're going to pray for our relationships together, for our community, for our city, and we're going to actually remember the reality of Jesus' goodness to us. So let us pray. Father, we submit that wherever we're at, you are there with us. And that is frustrating and glorious all in the same moment. It's a moment of breakthrough and breakdown. And so God, I'm so grateful that we don't have to hide from you as we're breaking down, but you are here to build us up as we break, that our weakness is actually your strength and that you give us a way through your scriptures to examine our hearts. I think about my own life and how you like year after year after year created space for me to hear the goodness of your gospel. Like you worked on me. And at some point it gave way. It was slow to work. So God, as, as we consider this moment, would we be willing to sit with you and just invite your presence here? And so that's all I ask now, Jesus, is would you meet with us? Would you meet with us through the power of your spirit? Would you guide us to a place of confession, of assurance? God, would you be present to us? And would you, by your grace and the power of your spirit, be present through us? In your powerful and saving name, Jesus, we just bring all of this to you. Amen.